Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Hello, this is Pat Iyer with Legal Nurse Podcast. Welcome back to another episode. I have the pleasure of bringing to you Tina Baxter, who is a legal nurse consultant. She is also an advanced practice registered nurse. She's a board certified gerontological nurse, a nurse practitioner, and she's also the host of the Nurse Shark Academy podcast, which interviews and spotlights nurse leaders and nurse entrepreneurs and other leaders in healthcare. Tina and I have known each other for a long time, Tina. I, I can't even hazard to guess how many years, and this is the first opportunity we have had to bring her on the podcast. Welcome to the show, Tina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. With Tina's focus on long-term care, I thought it would be helpful to dive into an issue that often gives rise to litigation, and that is falls in nursing homes. It's one of the common reasons why attorneys go to legal nurse consultants to ask for help with screening cases. It's one of the opportunities for you to help as an expert witness, if that's your clinical area. So I'd like to focus today on the topic of falls, the kinds of responsibilities that occur in nursing homes and the chain of command that exists. So Tina, first of all, we're going to talk about a specific type of fall, which in my experience reviewing cases can give um, the end result of a lot of injury. And that's a fall from, an, from a hydraulic lift. And for the sake of our audience, there are some common brands associated with what we're talking about. What are some of the terms that they should be looking for in the medical record that would signify to them that it was a hydraulic lift? Uh, one of them would be if they call it a Hoyer. That's one of the ways they'll uh, list it as a Hoyer lift. It also could be uh, described as a stand lift where you kind of like go to from a sitting or lying position to a standing position. Um, and so then they also may talk about it being a sling as well and that may be more of the carrier type that you remember um, if any of your audience uh, worked in home care uh, you might remember the old cranking lifts where you would lift them up in the air and like a uh, a sling and then bring them to put them into their chair so there's different types of lifts and uh, different ways of using them okay I seem to remember a name brand, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it Vandermark is another manufacturer of hydraulic lifts? Yes, I believe so. Mm -hmm. So as you're talking about the old version, that may be the current version in some of our audience's mind, if they haven't been involved in handling lifts, I remember, Tina, a device that was a crank handle with 
legs that spread apart to increase the stability of the base. Yes. The sling hangs down on chains, and then the patient is scooped into the sling and then moved with that sling into another place, whether that's the bed or the chair. You refer to that as an old style. So is there something that has replaced that mechanism? Well, now um, the, the, the sling, the, the, it's kind of like a sling lift. We used to call it a Hoyer. Those things are often used in home care because they're a lot less expensive. So they are still used. Um, and a lot of times we use by family members. Uh, but now we have mechanical lifts that with a button, you can lift them up. So you're not doing that cranking. And it depends on the type of lift and the proper sling that goes with it and how you position them. So it could be uh, the lift that comes up, the strap will come between the legs to kind of secure them more. Um, it depends on what type of uh, where you would place the loops, how large they are, where you want them to go, how, what type of position you want them in. So there's a lot more than just grabbing a lift device and doing it. And I have to say, it's a lot safer using the lift devices than trying to manually lift someone yourself because that saves your back, your knees. Um, possibly if the person would, uh, like their leg would give out, then suddenly, you know, you don't have to worry about that and them falling or dropping or, or something like that. So they're a lot safer to use now. Um, but what's nice is that um, they're a lot more readily available than they had been in certain areas. Now, I will say this, uh, lifts aren't typically used in assisted living. So it's mainly a long-term care and occasionally in a home situation um, based on that person. But in assisted living, usually lifts are not used. And I'm thinking about the cases that I've been involved in, Tina, involving Hoyer lifts and the old fashioned version that you're describing with the, the change, the chains and the pumping up mechanism. I can think of, and I'm hoping there's something that I can't think of that you can add to this list, but I can think of falls that involve not spreading the legs far enough apart to create a stable base the sling being laundered too many times, becoming frayed and ripping out of the chains. I have seen falls involving one person handling this transfer instead of two, and a person who slid out of the sling and landed on his head on the floor. Is there any other mechanism that you've experienced or you've seen that can result in a fall involving a lift? Uh, I've seen them where there's too much play when they get the person up. So they're actually swinging on it and they may swing out of it. I've seen where they've tried to use a lift on a person that was too large or too heavy and it actually bent the, the arm of the lift. And so it, tilted and they fell that way. So there's a lot of different ways if you're not careful on doing that. And then it could be that one person, if there are two people doing the lift with there should be, you have to make sure that everybody's on the same page. So if you put it on uh, the, the ring on two and the other ring on the other side was put on three, 
that can cause an accident and a person can slide out and it can cause them to get tangled up. So there's a lot of different ways um, that if you don't follow the manufacturer's instructions, that can cause you a problem with these lifts. In a case that I worked on, there were two nursing assistants in a nursing home who were transferring a patient using a lift. They dropped the patient on the floor. It was in a nursing home. The patient got two fractured hips and the aides were terrified they would be fired. So they didn't tell anybody about the incident. Can you give us some background behind what are the responsibilities of that CNA, that certified nursing assistant, to report such an incident? If there's a fall, the CNA is supposed to leave the resident where they are so that the nurse can evaluate them and assess them for injuries. If that's not done and care is delayed, then that opens up not only the facility to liability, but that individual to being charged um, criminally for abuse and neglect as an aide. And I've seen cases where that has happened, where there's been an injury, um, they didn't report it, and now they're looking at criminal charges. And that goes beyond just getting fired. That's maybe losing your, your ability to provide for your family because now you have all these legal fees and you can't work anywhere because now you've been charged with elder abuse. So it's very important that if you're an aide, you follow your chain of command and, and do what you're supposed to do. That being said, um, uh, sometimes I, I noticed that in some cases that they don't record accurately what happened. So then maybe they'll report it and they'll say, oh, well, I had to lay them on the floor. Well, it, you take them from... Um, a standing to a sitting and you're, you're laying them on the floor, it, it can be a little suspicious given the circumstances of what's going around in that room. Um, so you'd have to look at the type of injury and um, the type of fracture that happened. So there was a case that I had and it was a spiral fracture. So as I was explaining to the attorney, it was a twisting motion that happened when that person was being transferred. And so you have to look at not just did, did an accident happen, but how it happened. And that may help explain the picture a little bit better. Yes. As we think about that experience and laying the patient on the floor or laying the resident on the floor is a phrase that I have seen used in attempting to defend these incidents. Oh, I lowered the patient to the floor is an explanation that you hear in many types of fall cases where what happened was the patient hit the floor with a hard impact enough to break a bone, but they weren't just generally gently lowered down in a guided descent to the floor. That's one of the falsehoods associated with this. And I would say in some cases, because I've been on the other end of this, I worked as a CNA, and there is a technique for gently getting someone to the floor, guiding them to the floor. Um, what you have to look at is the extent of the injuries. You know, was this person, um, 
you know, sat down gently onto the floor. And I've certainly seen it happen. Certainly had it happen to me. Or was there, it looked like that there was a big impact to where they dropped and they weren't set on the floor. They sort of caught them on their way down and they hit the floor, as you say. So you have to look at the uh, depth of the injury because it may or may not be a case of being sat on the floor. But how did they arrive to the floor? Was it a sudden drop? Was it they were laid on the floor? Because we've had that happen. You know, we just had to lay them down. Um, but we carefully laid them down and mo actually moved the bed out the way to lay them down and got the Hoyer to get them back up because this person just decided um, at the last minute that they were just going to let it all go. And I've certainly had that with my with my husband. I had an incident of, of him uh, shortly after his stroke and we were coming into the house and I was behind him with his uh, um, walker and he just decides that he's just got to sit. And I'm like, dude, we're on the stoop. So I put my knee underneath him and just, you know, stood there and said, I can't let you go down on the ground. I can't pick you up. I said, so you're going to have to rest a minute and decide to get house into this chair. Otherwise, I have to call an ambulance and get people up because I can't pick you up. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a case for that. But you have to look at the nature of the injury. It's not just a one size fits all. And I think that's that's where a lot of people think about it. It's, um, you know, oh, they, they had a fall, so it must be neglect. Not necessarily. It may be a variety of different things that could cause this fall. Yes. And thank you for that clarification. I was sounding a little bit too cynical when I said that can't happen. It certainly can happen that you can lower a person to the floor if you're in the right position, you've got enough warning, you're noticing what's going on, you're strong enough. There's so many factors that are helpful to try to avoid the injury. And also we have to keep in mind as legal nurse consultants that the femur, the femur and the hip joint are, are the the, the largest bones in the body. So if there's a, an impact that is sufficient to break one of the largest bones in the body, even if the person has osteoporosis, it's very likely to be a significant impact that has taken yes. place. Who comes to the bedside to assess the resident? And I'll just stick with resident as we're talking about nursing home residents. Tell us about the staffing and who is available in terms of a clinical background beyond the certified nursing assistant to make a determination about, is this person injured? Oftentimes it's the uh, registered nurse in the building. Um, it could be the MDS coordinator. It could be the director of nursing. Um, they'll come in and they'll do an evaluation. If there is no RN in the building, then the LPN will make that determination. And it's up to them to document accurately what happened. Um, and if uh, there's any presence of pain or injury or how their body's positioned and whether or not it looked like they were out of alignment, all those different things. And then there's an investigation that usually happens, uh, usually within the first 24 to 48 hours uh, of the fall as the person is put on what we call neuro checks, which means every couple hours you're getting vital signs, you're making sure that they're cognitively okay, um, that they're not having any changes in their cognition or deficits. Um, 
So you'll do those for a period of time. And then it's up to the nurses to also inform the physician or nurse practitioner that's on call and also to inform the family member, if there is one, to inform them about what's happening. Is the LPN the one who makes those phone calls also? It can be the LPN as well. Again, if, if there's not an RN in the building at that time, because what people don't understand in long-term care, you only have to have an RN in the building for eight hours a day. Mm. So it may, may be an LPN. What kind of training should LPNs get in order to make the kind of assessment that you're talking about? Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Hey, I'm Pat Iyer, and I'm here to share my expertise on how subcontracting can boost your LNC business and bring you closer to your dreams and goals. In this session at our October 26, 27, and 28, 2023 LNC Success Online Conference, I'll be sharing tips and strategies that you can use as a subcontractor or as a person hiring subcontractors. We'll explore the key aspects of subcontracting that every LNC should know. You'll learn what to look for in a subcontractor and how to shine as one yourself. We'll also discuss the important questions to ask potential independent contractors and what the IRS says about subcontracting. I'll share my personal journey of expanding my LNC business to include subcontracting. With over 200 experts under contract from various healthcare backgrounds, I mastered the art of subcontracting, and I want to pass that knowledge on to you. You'll get the benefit of my 28 years running a highly successful LNC business. I now dedicate my time to helping other LNCs achieve that same level of success. Today, I bring my extensive experience in subcontracting to give you a comprehensive understanding of its benefits and drawbacks. I built this session on insights I share in my book, LNC Subcontracting, How to Boost Your Business. That's the 16th book in the Creating a Successful LNC Practice series. Regardless of whether you're looking to subcontract or to hire subcontractors, this conference session will provide you with practical assistance and insights to make informed decisions for your business. It's time to take your LNC business to new heights. Don't miss this opportunity to join me and learn from my session on LNC subcontracting and discover how you can boost your business today. Get your seat by clicking on the link right below this video. Now let's return to the show. Well, in, in school, nursing school, you're often taught to do that head-to-toe assessment. So you'll want to uh, know about how to evaluate 
their cognition, if they've had any injuries, kind of like standard first aid is what we think of, right? Uh, do they hurt anywhere? Is is their body or limb out of rotation? Is something sticking out that shouldn't be sticking out? Um, all those different things. And you need to, you know, not just ask them, are they okay, but actually assess their, their body. It's what we teach in first aid and CPR. The first thing you say is, hey, are you okay? Can I help? Where does it hurt? And those are the standard things that you would ask and what you would want to see in the documentation. You know, did they evaluate the person and what the person said happened around the incident? And if they had any presence of pain, if there was any swelling, if there was any bruising, if there were any cuts, um, any of those things. We had a resident fall out of his wheelchair and face plant, um, found out his blood pressure medicine was too high. His blood pressure was dropping. So we were able to adjust that, but he broke his nose. You know, there's a lot of blood. So what did you do? You know, we sent him to the hospital. Obviously he had to have a head CT and all those things because he had a fall. Was that neglect? No, it was an accident that happened. His blood pressure dropped suddenly. He wasn't able to react quickly enough. Um, there was no staff around. He had a fall. Did we do something afterwards? Yes, we did. We changed his blood pressure medicine. We evaluated him for safety. Uh, we determined whether or not he needed to change the type of wheelchair he was in and switch him to a tilt wheelchair. All those different things happen after an incident. Mm -hmm. We've talked about fractured hips in terms of falls, but the other type of injury that, that can occur is head injuries. Yes. And spinal injuries, yes. um, both of which I've seen as a result of falls in nursing homes. Does the LPN have an understanding of the impact of, for example, a head injury on somebody who's on anticoagulation? Is that part of their knowledge set? It should be part of their knowledge set, and there should be a protocol in place by the facility. And so to say... If there is a fall and a suspect, suspected head injury, um, then these are the things that you should do. Now, um, all nurses that are giving medications, and I'm going to include uh, qualified medication aids because I teach my aides this. You should know what the medication can do um, and what it's supposed to do before you give it. So if you don't understand that medication, it's incumbent upon the nurse to look it up. So mm -hmm. knowing that someone's on an anticoagulant, the risks for brain bleeds and other injuries because of that should be paramount. Um, we had a case where someone had, um, um, she was on an anticoagulant and she would often hit her arms against the walls and things like that. So we, we made some accommodations for that because she was getting bruising and, and things like that. So there are things that you can do. Um, knowing what type of medication that they're on, and it should be in the plan of care. Patient is on an anticoagulant medication. These are the safety precautions that we're going to take. Now, as we think about the immediate aftermath, we've talked about an LPN or an RN coming to the resident's room or wherever this injury has taken place to make an assessment to notify the physician and the family. Are there x-ray facilities typically inside a nursing home or is that a service that comes to the nursing home? 
typically it's an outside agency that is contracted to come to the nursing home. And um, I do want to preface this. I want your listeners to understand this is not like being in the hospital where you can call someone and say, I need an x-ray stat. And they're there within 10 to 15 minutes. So a stat x-ray in a nursing home could be four hours. So you have to understand stat doesn't mean the same thing in nursing home as it does in the hospital. Uh, that being said, they will come out and they're able to do x-rays to determine if there's been an injury. But I've had cases where we've had an x-ray and didn't show a fracture because there maybe there was too much swelling around at the time of the mobile x-ray. But a few hours or a few days later, we get a repeat x-ray and did find a fracture. And I had that happen to one of my residents. Um, she had a fall in the nursing home and she had a broken leg. And the nurses said, you know, she's not putting any pressure on that leg. She keeps drawing it up. We don't know what's going on. She had this fall. Let's go ahead and get another x-ray. And sure enough, she had a fracture. And I told her, I said, hey, I'm going to have to see you to the hospital. She had dementia, by the way. And she goes, why? I said, well, you fell. When you fell, you broke your leg. And she goes, I wonder why it was hurting. Mm. And I said, why didn't you say anything? And she goes, well, I didn't really want to be a bother. So she sat there for two days with a broken leg because she didn't want to be a bother. And so this is, again... Uh, I want people to understand it's not cookie cutter. Every case is different and unique. This, the facility was doing what they want, you know, what they should have done. She was ambulatory. She had a fall. It was like a, a trip over something and she fell. So it wasn't anticipated. Um, they had her in a chair because she, you know, she wasn't able to walk right now uh, because of the fall. They were evaluating her and they're like, something's off. We had this negative x-ray, but they went further and did more testing. So, you know, when you see that, you have to make sure you're following through. They notified me. We got the additional x-ray. I went in and talked to her, immediately got her sent out um, and then called the family and told them this is what's happening. Um, you know, we're sending her to the to the hospital because of this. And so I think communication is really critical in these instances. And it's the communication that sometimes can make or break you. You know, did you talk to the family? Did you talk to the physician? Did you follow through? Do you tell the next shift <laughs> that this person um, had a fall and what precautions that you had, you know, did you tell the CNAs, Hey, you know, they were, they were kind of weak in physical therapy. And so uh, we probably need to switch them to a two person uh, transfer instead of a one person transfer. Sometimes that information doesn't get passed on and that causes problems. Yeah. I've seen many cases involving falls where the question is how many individuals should have been involved in transferring this resident, was this person truly a two-person assist and only one person was there? Maybe that CNA thought in his or her judgment that it would be safe to do the transfer with just one person, and then it turned out not to be safe, unfortunately, for everybody concerned. And, and then sometimes you, you know, I hate to say it, but you catch residents doing something they shouldn't do. Like, for example, they're getting themselves up and out of bed and you just happen to be going by and you catch them and you have a choice. Do I try to get them back in the bed or do I try to get them to the chair? You know, in those instances, what do you do and what's the most safe thing to do? So, 
Um, it is part of it is individual judgment. That's like an emergent case. That's something out of the ordinary. But on a routine basis, there should be communicating with the care staff. Hey, this person is a two person lift. I remember when I started out as a CNA many moons ago, um, we only had like one or two people on night shift um, working. And you're talking about 75 residents. So if you needed help getting someone up, you had to wait until that person was available. Otherwise, you're lifting that person by yourself because at that time there was only one lift device in the entire building. So I would lift 265 pound patients by myself. I don't recommend that. That will, that will kill your back, which is why I quickly left uh, the bedside as a CNA. <laughs> you know, like, I got to do something else. I think I'll go back to school and become a nurse. <laughs> I can't survive that. I can't even imagine what it would be like to try to take care of 75 people with a couple of staff on a night shift. That that sounds like a totally impossible but requirement. You're talking, I'm going to say almost 30 years ago, where the type of patient that you had back then was so different than the residents you have now. They were not as sick. Most of them were ambulatory. Most of them were able to make decisions for themselves, get themselves dressed. I mean, other than the, the Alzheimer's unit, but a lot of them were a lot healthier to be in the facility so you didn't need as many staff but now we have such high acuity in nursing homes that the staffing issue is a lot different and i think that long-term care is finally catching up and they're thinking to realize that hey the type of patients that we had in nursing homes 30 years ago is not the same as the patients that we have today and that's the difference well, and that's an important point, Tina, and we're talking to an international audience who have all different types of healthcare systems and acuities in their countries. To put this in the context, we have people in ICU who in the past would never have survived. We have yes. people on med surge units who would have been in ICU in the past. We have people in nursing homes who would have been in med surge in the past. And I was just talking to a, a nurse yesterday in preparation for doing a podcast with him, and he was discussing that his hospital has a plan that they put in place with, it's called hospital at home, where they, for the sake of being able to move a patient out of the hospital one or two days early, they put that patient in home with a registered nurse and a paramedic making visits to these patients who are getting, quote, hospital care in their home, we're continually shifting these boundaries to try to manage the acuity that is overwhelming the healthcare system. What's interesting is we're actually going back to what we used to do many, many years ago, where everybody stayed at home. No one went to the hospital unless you were actively dying of something that you couldn't be around other people uh, where you were contagious. Otherwise, you were treated at home. The doctor came and saw you at home. They, If you had IVs, they set it up at home. The nurse stayed with you at home. And so I think there's a value in going back to some of that care uh, as much as we can is making it 
in your home. And that's the philosophy of long-term care. This is the resident's home. It's not um, to be so institutionalized and medicalized, right? Is to put it bluntly, this is their home and we want to continue to keep them in their home as long as possible. And if we can keep them from going to the hospital and treating things in house, that's the often the best course. Yes, especially with all of the contagious diseases that exist in our healthcare system today, staying in your own environment certainly has a huge benefit. I always joke with my patients. I said, you don't really want to go to the hospital. There's sick people there. <laughs> True. True. Well, Tina, I know that we've just scratched the surface of this topic, and I would love for you to be able to share with our listener who's listening to this on our Spotify or Apple podcast channels or on our watching it on our YouTube channel, Legal Nurse Business what is the best way for people to be able to reach you, Tina Baxter, registered nurse, advanced practitioner in gerontological nursing and LNC? Go for it, Tina. Um, if you're looking for um, a legal nurse consultant to help you with your cases, you can always reach me at my website, baxterprofessionalservices.com. Um, that would be a great place to contact me. Um, or if you wanted to listen to the Nurse Shark Academy show, you can get us on YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, Apple, wherever you want to, or go to our website, um, the nursesharkacademy.biz. And you can certainly um, contact me there as well. Thank you, Tina. I appreciate so much. You've shared some expertise on this area, shed some light on what can often be um, a very common cause of liability in home care. We all know that not all falls are preventable. We know that some falls are, and we've talked today about falls from a distance, from a height. We've talked about the responsibilities to do an assessment while the resident is on the floor and hasn't been moved. And who does that assessment, whether that's a registered nurse, an LPN, and some of the things that they look for. So I would encourage you to contact Tina if you need assistance with long-term care cases. She is available to help and is happy to do so. And be sure to tell another legal nurse consultant about Legal Nurse Podcast. We started in September of 2016. We have recorded as of today, over 550 some shows. And we love to hear your feedback about what you're looking for in terms of guests on Legal Nurse Podcast. You can reach me at Pat Iyer, that's last name is spelled I-Y-E-R, at legalnursebusiness.com. And I would love to hear from you. Be sure to come back next week. New show, new guest, new topic. Thanks so much. Coming up next, you're going to have an opportunity to hear from Dr. Brenda Towsley, who is a neurology clinical nurse specialist, has her doctorate in nursing, and serves attorneys as an expert witness, helping them as well behind the scenes. Brenda and I have been speaking about the types of strokes, the catastrophic damage that can occur if a stroke is not diagnosed and treated in time 
if indeed it's even possible to treat it, to try to halt or reverse some of the damage that may occur. Brenda, tell our viewer, what were some of the key topics that we talked about in your podcast? So Pat, we talked about things like what kinds, what types of strokes are there? We talked about um, some of the treatments that we can offer for stroke and some of the um, effects if there's delay, whether in recognizing it or um, once it's recognized, getting the treatments that they need and stuff like that. Um, we talked a lot about who needs to recognize um, that somebody might be having a stroke symptoms and then what do they do and what those symptoms are. And then we talked a little bit about um, what some of those legal ramifications can be um, within the care of somebody who presents with stroke symptoms. And be sure to watch this podcast to find out what is the best possible scenario that a patient could undergo who's having a stroke in terms of where they are, when it happens, and the type of stroke, and what you can do as a legal nurse consultant to help an attorney who is questioning, could there have been a different outcome if people had acted differently? That's our key strength as legal nurse consultants. Brenda will also share with you a couple of resources that are available to measure the quality of care against to determine if the protocols were appropriately followed. So you won't want to miss Brenda's podcast on Legal Nurse Podcast coming up next. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.